Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. All right, back here on the Investor Coaching Show, Paul Winkler. Okay, so you're trying to figure stuff out. I worry about not having enough money in retirement, so I hire a financial advisor, let's say, you know, this is you, so I hire somebody, I, so I hire somebody that I think is going to handle my car repairs, and I hope that they are going to be good at that. Well, how do I know that they are good at that? Well, my car runs when I walk out of the place, right? How do I know that, uh, you know, let's say that the, the plumber it, you know, is qualified. Well, you know, they, they walk out of my house and, and I'm not having leaks all over the place. I mean, there, there is evidence and the evidence is immediate. Well, in the financial world, the evidence may not come down the road until 30, 40 years. You may not know because markets go up and they go down. When they go down, doesn't mean necessarily things are bad. When they go up, doesn't necessarily mean things are good. You know, so how do I figure out whether I'm doing things that are in alignment with what academic research says? Well, number one, you know a little bit about academic research, but even if you don't know a whole lot about it, you probably know a few things just intuitively that you don't time the market like I was just talking about. You hear people say it all the time. Well, what you'll find out is that it's very subtle the way investment firms market time. They engage in tactical asset allocation, moving money around. And I just gave you one of the ways to actually figure that out. And if you missed that, you go back and check out the podcast, paulwinkler.com. You know, but these are the things that you need to know. So one of the things that I tell people to look at is, number one, do I believe that trying to pick stocks, you know, you hear people, you know, picking a company and, and they make it big because they, they, they find the hot stock and they do really well. But now it's kind of a running joke, you know, hot stocks. Now, people, I think, intuitively know that trying to pick hot stocks is probably not the best way to manage money. And you go, well, yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, you know, I'm not, that's not me. I was talking to somebody the other day. She said, I don't change anything around. I says, I'm not talking about you changing anything around. I'm talking about the advisor or the fund company changing things around. Well, how do I know? This is the second one. So when I buy stocks, I don't try to figure out what a, what's a hot company, what's a really great company to jump into. Now, you may think, well, I just want to own you know, companies that I've heard of, that I know. And the reality is most of the companies we know, we know because they have done well in the past and they are, all, are already selling for high prices. So the future return potential is significantly often decreased as a result of that. Now, so what happens with fund companies is they're always trying to find out, you know, they're, they're, companies are trying to, you know, these active managers, they're looking for those hot stocks. They're looking for the great companies because if they can get, you know, a good return over a short period of time, they can use that information in their advertising. They can use it to attract new money. So how do I know if they're engaging in this process? Look at something called the turnover ratio. Now, if you own a mutual fund, you can go out on the internet, you know, look up that mutual fund, take the mutual fund name. You might look for the ticker. You, you'll have, you know, these five letters ending in X 
And th- that those letters will tell you how to find that particular fund. You know, A, B, C, D, X, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but you, you can look at the fund name, you know, the XYZ growth fund, you know, A, maybe it might be an A share or it might be, you know, just the ABC growth fund I or whatever. You know, it might, that's the share class that letter afterwards. Uh, so institutional, you know, front end load or whatever. But what you're looking for is look at that fund and then look for turnover ratio. And, you know, search engines are great for helping you find this stuff these days. You know, you can look at that and look at the turnover of the fund. Now, typically, it's going to differ. The turnover ratio that I'm okay with will differ based on the size of the company. But let's say it is a large U.S. Uh, blend or, or growth fund. I'm typically looking for a turnover ratio that is less than 10%. In most years, it's going to be less than that. Now, if it is a small cap fund, some years it may be less than 20, maybe 10, and you know, it's under 10, maybe, maybe not, because small companies become medium-sized companies, and when they become medium-sized companies, they need to be moved on. So you might see turnover ratios upwards. I've seen 30%, you know, in some really active years. But when I see 60, 70%, I see, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and 90%, whatever, I'm going, whoa, wait a minute. This, this looks like a real problem. Because that's telling me that, let's say it's 60%, that 60% of the holdings are different from one year to the next. So then I, I might be looking at value funds. You know, I might be looking at a large value fund. And, and if I see, you know, 10, 12%, that's getting a little bit high. You know, historically speaking, I usually don't want to see it that high. But, you know, a lot of these funds out there, you might see 60, 70, 80, 90% turnover. That's telling you that there's an issue. There could be a big issue with that. Now, sometimes there are mitigating circumstances, but they're rare that you might have a high turnover, you know, in a particular year because of some weird thing that was done in the fund. But typically when you're seeing that, you're seeing, and you can read the prospectus again, look at it. What does the fund manager think their job is? Finding undervalued stocks, you know, looking for areas that are overvalued, moving those out, looking for opportunities, quote unquote. As I often say, you know, that's, the, that's a buzzword that you really want to watch out for because the opportunity means that they think that they can read the tea leaves and figure out what's going to be hot in the future. You know, so that, that changing of the stocks inside of the portfolio, you know, you think about it, you got multiple, multiple mutual fund managers out there. And quite often, as some of the academics have joked, that you got one fund manager selling a stock and another person buying it. One of them's going to be wrong. So when they engage in that type of process, here's why they're doing it. If they can beat their benchmark, the area of the market that they're investing in, let's say it's large growth or small growth or large value or small value or whatever, whatever they're investing in, if they can beat it for a short period of time, then they can brag and say, wow, look at us. And then money flows into their mutual fund. I mean, look at back a couple of years ago, Kathy Wood. I mean, she had, had this tremendous performance and all of a sudden everybody was writing about her. Oh my goodness, what a fund manager. Oh, phenomenal returns. And then all of a sudden this money flowed in and then all of a sudden the bottom fell out. It didn't work out so well. Or you see, you know, Lake Mason, Value Trust. That was another one. Kind of beat the market like 15 years in a row or something like that. Bill Miller. 
And then all of a sudden, everybody's talking about him. And then all of a sudden, the hot streak went away and people lost a tremendous amount of money. You know, so this happens over and over and over again. I could keep going on with examples because I've seen this, been doing this well over 30 years, and I've seen it over and over again. So, you know, that's another rule of investing. You know, don't try to pick stocks, you know, buying and selling and trading and all of that stuff. Those, those are some things you can look up. You can look it up in the prospectus, even the prospectus toward the back. Typically, you'll find where it has turnover ratio year over year. You might like, might, you might see like five years worth of turnover. But turnover tells you how often they're turning the portfolio over. Now, with bond funds, it's not as big of a deal because bonds mature. This is, I'm talking about stock funds here. Now, the next rule of investing is one that I hear all the time. Matter of fact, I hear it being talked about as the way to choose mutual funds. And I'm going to talk about how a rule of investing that you probably intuitively know as being, you know, this is probably all the way I do, the way I ought to do things. You'll get why this is a bad deal right after this. You're listening to the Investor Coaching Show. I am Paul Winkler. PaulWinkler.com is the website. Be right back after this. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area, and everything we do is fee only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get an initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. Every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degree planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Okay, so as an investor, you're sitting there going, I don't know whether everything's being done properly in my portfolio. I got a financial advisor for that. They're supposed to know those things. And as I pointed out, the education bar is not quite what uh, I believe it ought to be. <laughs> I think it's, you know, you look at most in industries and the financial industry somehow gets a bit of a uh, pass when it comes to level of ed education. Now, not, not in all countries. There are many countries that the requirement is pretty high to be a financial person. You know, in some country, and, you know, I remember John Stossel, no, it wasn't John Stossel, it was, um, oh man, who was that? Jonathan Clements actually wrote about this one time. He says, you go to some countries, and not even like well-known, not like Germany, France, but, you know, it was, I forgot which country it was, it was... Um, uh, some small country. And in order to call yourself a financial advisor, you have to have a fairly stout degree to be able to do that. So in essence, what happens, a lot of people in America, they are their own pension manager. Used to be you had pension managers that managed things and they were pretty well educated. But in America, you know, you might have a financial advisor, but you don't have a clue. They just call themselves that and you think, oh, there, there's got to be some big hurdle that they have to jump to be able to do that? And my answer would be not necessarily. 
you know, I've talked about studies, the uh, Indiana University USC study I love to refer to, because they basically said, hey, you're going to try to hold people to a fiduciary responsibility standard. Well, let's take a look at the investment portfolios of financial advisors. Oops, they're making a lot of mistakes. It's what they found in the study. A lot of mistakes and bad ones. And not only when they're working, but even when they're retired and they have no incentive to be mismanaging their own portfolio to be able to say, Miss Jones, I'm managing my portfolio the same way I'm managing yours. You know, so you get rid of that and you still have these problems. So what are some of the problems? Well, this is what I'm pointing out. And again, you know, if you've missed the first couple of segments of the show, go back to the podcast, paulwinkler.com and how to judge a portfolio and how to judge an investment advisor, you know, just look for that information. And what you'll do is you'll see lots of stuff on my website about that. But anyway, what's the next thing? Not necessarily in order, but you know, if we look at one of the basic things that we were are told so often in choosing mutual funds is go back and look at track record, look at how the fund has done over three years, five years, 10 years. And you think, well, 10 years is better than, you know, five, right? Not necessarily. You may have a fund. I just named a fund in the last segment where the person beat the market for 15 years. And you go, well, you know, what happened? Did the person lose their touch? I would submit they never had a touch. You know, that what happened was they got lucky and there's going to be somebody out of tens of thousands of people trying, there's going to be somebody that has great market beating performance. But to mistake that for skill is a problem. So look at how the funds were chosen. You know, remember back to when you put your money in the funds. Do you even know? Sometimes and I've asked this question to some people and they just don't even know. They don't even know how the advisor chose them. You could ask, you know, so how are we choosing these things? You know, just kind of casually ask how the funds are. Well, you know, this fund, look at this track. If they're pointing at track record, then you know there's a problem. Uh, it used to be that uh, there, there was a, a, a company uh, who, who shall remain nameless, uh, very prominent around here, very well known, a lot of advertising. And they would do, they would put out these books and they were really nice. And they would look at your portfolio and they would show, oh, look at your portfolio as it is right now. And this is what we recommend. And they would have all the funds that they were recommending, all five-star funds. And then what they would do is this is what you would have, this is what would have happened had you been in these funds during the past 10 years or whatever period it was. I've forgotten how many years it was. I think it was 10. This is what would have happened. And you look at it, you can imagine reading this hardbound book. I mean, this thing was nice. And you go, wow, oh my goodness, I way underperformed what I would have had had I had the funds that these guys are recommending. And what you didn't know, and I did happen to know, because I knew the company really well, was that they didn't even own the funds that they were recommending during the period of time that they were showing. So what, in effect, you were doing is you were looking at pie in the sky, that you, that you wouldn't even have that performance with them because they owned a different set of funds during the previous 10 year period than what they were showing you that you ought to buy. Well, being the ornery guy I am, I kept that book. I have it in my office still to this day. 
And what I did is I actually tracked the funds that they recommended and what their subsequent performance was from the date that they actually recommended them. And it was bad. I mean, some, in some cases, it was like, you know, 3 to 10%. 10% was an unusual underperformance. The funds underperformed their benchmark going forward from the time they recommended them. They underperformed by that much. And people that bought them unwittingly, they didn't know it because they, they don't even know how to check this stuff. You know, do you know how to know whether your funds are doing what they ought to be doing? Well, I, I would venture a guess that the vast majority of people listening to me do not know. They don't have a clue how to benchmark. Because it's not something the industry goes out and teaches you because if you learned it, if you understood how to benchmark, you'd fire them. You'd be like, you know, get away from my money. Don't touch it. Get away. And this is something that I think you ought to know how to do. I always tell people how to keep up with us. That's, that's, I think that's absolutely critical. You ought to have a way to, to have a, just, just be able to look at things. It didn't have to take long. You know, a couple minutes every quarter and know whether everything ought to be going in an objective way to know whether everything is going the way it ought to be going. And, you know, so often we kind of miss that. Now, what's another thing that we can look at? Here's, now, here's another thing that's not so obvious because I'll have to tell you a bit of the re research behind it. But if I look through my portfolio and I see mid-cap stocks in the portfolio, if I see somebody's portfolio and I see mid-cap stocks, that tells me that there's a little bit of an issue. Now, why? Well, because there is something called the goalpost effect in investing. If we look back through history, all the way to the 1920s, we see that typically the highest and lowest returns occur at the very biggest and very smallest of companies. You know, and what we look for in diversification is dissimilar price movement. We want to own things that aren't performing well at the same time. So that's what we want to see is the highest and lowest returns at different peripheries. Now you think, well, if, don't they just cancel each other out? If one goes up and the other one goes down, that's not what I'm talking about. You know, if I have one thing that goes up and the other thing goes down as much as it goes up, and that's all always what happens, yeah, you got zero return, right? It doesn't make any sense. Well, we know what we notice about markets going back through history, and you've probably seen the mountain charts before, that they start way down here and they go up and up and back and forth and up and forth, but they're basically going up at a diagonal, and that diagonal is going to be dependent upon what asset class it is and the return history on that asset category. One might be you know, historical return of 10%, one area may be 12%, another may be 11%. But it goes back and forth and back and forth. And since they go up to the, to the right diagonally, it's, you know, I, if I own something else that's moving with it, what happens is they both tend to go off of that diagonal if you can kind of picture it in your mind. But because they don't have the great performance at the same periods of time, one may go up 45% where another one only goes up five. And they both went up, let's say. Or one goes down 15% and the other one goes down 5%. Or one area goes down you know, 30%. You might have an asset class that goes out like, well, last year, uh, the, the S&P 500, um, 18% uh, or 2022. Uh, it went down 18% where small value stocks went down three. Now, it was a different performance. They both went down, but they went down to very different degrees. So with mid-caps, the issue really is this, 
is that you don't have as dissimilar a price movement historically. And because of that, what happens, things move too much with each other. Now that becomes a real problem when you get to retirement and you're starting to take an income. If you have one thing that zigs and the other one zigs with it, <laughs> then all of a sudden you've got a problem with your portfolio isn't able to deliver the income because when they're both zigging down, you're having to sell more shares to get that same level of income. And that's the issue. So, you know, really with medium-sized companies, mid-cap stocks, I don't typically like to have them in a portfolio. I say typically, there are a couple exceptions if I'm dealing with a 401k and I can't find a good value alternative, I may use a mid-cap value because, you know, that will be better than not having that asset category uh, typically than uh, than with with just you know, just missing the area, you know, just because of the diversification benefits. Okay, so when you're investing, you're going, how do I know that the advisor knows what they're doing? What are the level of education? A lot of times we don't really know what the level of education of the advisor is. I and mean, I've talked to people many times, how did you choose your advisor? Well, a friend of mine said that they, uh, they recommended the person. And I said, well, how did they choose? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, is your friend a financial expert? Well, no, they wouldn't be hiring an advisor if they were if They were an expert in the area. So they may be recommending somebody because they're nice. So you got to have a little bit more. I think there needs to be a little bit more. There's got to be a way that you can look at things and know whether somebody's philosophy of managing money lines up with yours. Now, I've given a few rules of investing. You know, and they're basic things that you've heard forever. Don't try to time the market. How to ferret that out. Talked about that. Now, how to determine whether stock picking is happening. You know, trying to pick the hot stocks or pick the hot areas of the market and what's going to be great in the period coming up or whatever. Or, you know, tactical asset allocation. I'll talk a little bit about that. How to ferret that out. Look at turnover ratios. Looking at style drift is what it's called when you're looking at the boxes changing and things like that. Look at your statements from years ago. Compare them to now. Are there big changes? That could tell you that there's some, that there's some market timing going on. Uh, you know, look to see if they're, if they've recommended or just in your memory, have they recommended things and, you know, say, Hey, you need to be putting more of your money in gold or, you know, and you know, people talk about gold and I go, it's not an investment. There's no cost of capital. You know, there, if we look at that and we goes, it goes up and down based on supply and demand. And I hear people, financial people say, well, as long as you don't have any more than 10% of your portfolio. And I'm going, why would you want anything? I don't want just a little bit of arsenic in my food. <laughs> you know, no, thank you. That doesn't make sense. You know, if you're a dietitian saying, well, if you, as long as you don't have too much arsenic, you know, 10% of your diet isn't arsenic, your your year's fine. No, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Sorry, I'm not going there. Uh, another thing that you think about is bonds. What are bonds for in your investment portfolio? If I own bonds, what, when you think of investing in the bond market, what do you typically think of? What word comes to mind? And if you're like most people, it's going to be the word safety. You know, so safety is the idea beyond fixed income bonds. So what can we look at there? Well, we can look at the credit rating of the bonds and you can actually find this information on your bond funds. If you own a bond fund, you can look at what the credit rating is. If you see AAA, AA, A rated bonds, that's then the bonds are, they're lending money to companies or governments that have a high ability to repay. 
But if you start to see double B, B rated bonds, you start to see those lower rated bonds, there's a problem. Another thing is look at duration. If I have, you know, seven, eight, nine, you know, if I have too much in, in my average duration, like for example, I look at my portfolio, I would say my average duration somewhere is between two and three. You know, fairly low duration, not, you don't want really high numbers there because what those high numbers represent is if interest rates go up, how much those bonds can go down in value. Remember, what, what are we there for? We're there for safety. If interest rates go way up, you can have stocks go down, as we've seen, and also your bonds can go down with your stocks. There's a problem. That is because what happens is interest rates can affect profitability of companies, but they can also affect bond prices in a negative way. So those are things that you just look at. And if you start to ferret out, ferret out some of that stuff, now yeah, the education process, you can start it at our website, paulwinkler.com. Lots of videos out there. And of course, so I mean, call up and go, go to one of our offices and talk to somebody. And if it's some of these things, you're like, oh, I'm not going to go through any of this stuff you just talked about. Well, have, that's, that's what we do as well. Help you out with that. PaulWinkler.com. But becoming an educated investor, I think, is critical. Don't blindly trust the investment industry. It's not an industry that you can blindly trust. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. If you want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.